Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Ether is the perfect drug for Las Vegas. In this town, they love a drunk. Fresh meat. Come on, buddy. So they put us through the turnstiles and turned us loose inside. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dose of Ether. This is your host, Lucian, and joining me again today is our co-host, Evan Van Ness. What up, Evan? Howdy. What's going on? It's uh, good to hear that your voice is back, and uh, yeah, I'm glad that it wasn't anything serious. Yeah, I had a, had a little scare there, but um, it's it's coming back. I'll be a little quiet on this episode, maybe, but I think I think we're good to go. Yeah, it's interesting because it's so easy to do production for like separate audio feeds that like we can tune our voices to be exactly the same level of volume, no matter how how low you speak, essentially, as long as it's consistent throughout the episode, because. I'm not producing music here. <laughs> I was going to say, you can probably find some sort of leveler too, right? Yeah, but you don't want to sound auto-tuned, do you? No, it might be cool. It's an experiment. <laughs> We're all about experiments in the Ethereum community, right? Yes, and the experiment is, could you listen to Ethereum news while <laughs> <laughs> it's remixed as like a Flow Rider song? <laughs> Uh, just lay down beats for me (laughs) i wish i could yeah speaking of people on our network that are like really good singers i uh i with um i went with colin to a karaoke bar in new york and man he crushed karaoke so hard that he actually had to push a girl away from him after his set. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was <laughs> no autotune needed there. Like, <laughs> was she like fangirling him? Completely. Yeah, it was like his third oh. song. It was like I think it was a John Legend song. After that, I'm like, man. I need to buy a guitar, learn how to sing. <laughs> yeah. Was... I've been thinking about getting a guitar recently. Need a creative outlet. Yeah. I actually, uh, one of my friends recently gifted me uh, juggling balls. And I also picked up a set of like nice playing cards. So instead of like, I don't know, some people have fidget spinners as a way to kind of like have an outlet or like a way to uh, to kind of like release pent up energy. Um, I think juggling balls are actually really interesting because if you ever try to like overthink it, then you lose coordination and you drop it. And it's like, it's kind of kind of a nice little stress relief activity i don't know if i've ever heard of anyone juggling stress relief before (laughs) juggling for stress relief i do it more to like take a break from coding in the sense that like okay i just finished something i like it's working and i need a break and rather than opening up youtube or like 
or Twitter, which is like a constant stream of like distraction and entertainment that's literally designed to make me addicted and want to keep scrolling. Instead, I'll just like take a quick break and juggle for a little bit just to like kind of get out of the thought process of a local problem and focus on the larger situation at hand. That's cool. Yeah, you can actually feel yourself like kind of taking a step back and like being a little bit more autonomous as opposed to like explicit and direct in your thinking. It's kind of nice. Did you, can you juggle more than three things? I can't, no. I'm just getting three to the point in which I'm comfortable enough to actually like change direction. Um, Like go in and out, you mean? mm -hmm, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then once I get that, um, then four is actually really difficult because it's act- it's much more similar to uh, juggling two balls with one hand simultaneously than it is with three. Um, right. Yeah. You just do two in each hand. It's, I mean, I never mastered it. Like I, when we were teenagers, we all learned like my friend group, we all learned to juggle like the klutz book of juggling, which, um, you know, is probably a mid nineties thing. Like if you're not as old as I am, you might not even have heard of it. It was super popular at the time. Like everybody had them. It like took over the nation for a brief period. Um, anyway. Um, yeah. And, but like, you know, I, I could do three and that was okay. But four was, I never, never even got close. In fact, to be honest with you, I never even got good at like doing anything but balls and, and bags. Like, the whole like chickens or like, you know, plastic chickens or um, batons or bowling pins, like those were always, that's another level of hard that I never really got. Have you ever tried it in like groups, like passing it between people and. Yeah, we did some of that. I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't too hard actually. Um, and like taking over from each other, mm-hmm. like, um, yeah, that, that actually like to me, wasn't, wasn't too, too hard. But to me, going to four is was a no brainer. Or I'm sorry, not a no the opposite of a no brainer. Like a deal breaker. Just mm-hmm. not not ever gonna happen in a lifetime. Yeah, I mean I was just never gonna practice enough to get there. I'm <laughs> sure it's possible if I really did, but just you know, I don't know. My half hearted attempts didn't make any progress whatsoever. So <laughs> It wasn't gonna happen. I mean, the like the 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 other stuff, like the the baton pins, like those or the bowling pins, like those seem possible. It's just a matter of like getting your flip right, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. Anyway, blockchain. I, I actually, <laughs> I actually got Klutz, uh juggling balls gifted to me. So small side nice. note. <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I guess they still live. I actually probably haven't seen them and two decades now like it's been a long time yeah (laughs) so um this week in blockchain we have a couple of interesting topics to discuss but probably the most recent today um is the parody controversy of okay so parody is trying to find a way to drop support for their Ethereum client, but 
still set up an ecosystem that will continue developing, maintaining, and pushing code without the financial responsibility falling solely on parity, the company. Yeah, that's that's probably like the first and biggest topic that are happening. Um, I'm the not Twitter, entirely the Twitter surprised. was a was a blaze um, all all day long and probably will be for days as well. I'm not surprised, and their incentives and their interests were aligned such that even with the Ethereum Foundation grant. Um, it was basically difficult to see how they can be fully committed to um, maintaining the parity client while at the same time also working on Polkadot as an organization. Especially when you look at some of the leadership uh, within the company, it seems like they continue to allocate and pull team members away from the uh, Ethereum client onto the Polkadot client and in the end I think it's I mean up to them they're a private company they do what they want I'm not personally surprised I've always kind of called into question when I saw the incentive and the organizational structure of parity um, and the fact that it's like their incentives don't perfectly align with the success of the Ethereum project, especially with launching their own chain. Um, even if they do eventually build it so that you could run ETH1 um, or maybe ETH2 on their parachain as a parachain, um, it doesn't seem like the community incentive structures or at least the token economic structures of it have really been figured out on what that kind of integration would look like. Um, but like basically Gavin Wood had um, an independent idea on how to scale ETH2 and it seems like they are no longer interested in supporting and furthering the uh, Ethereum 2 chain um, and they're no longer going to be a leading implementer of Ethereum 2. And now they're scrambling to figure out what to do with their current Ethereum parity client. Um, if that's a good summary of the situation. Yeah, that, I mean, that seems pretty reasonable. There's a lot of backstory there that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like personal history impossible. and drama. Yeah. <laughs> I've glazed over that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean,. Yeah, the like, um, it's hard to really, I mean, summarize. And for anyone listening, it's hard for you to understand the entire situation unless you know all that. But yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, there is still this, this, um, this incentive misaligned and well, I mean, crazy incentives in this, in this blockchain crypto space where like, why should you contribute to a to a an existing project when you can like go out and create your own project and your own base chain and then like the market has ludicrous valuations on some of these base chains that like have no reason to exist 
Uh, I mean, frankly, like you can look at like the top 25, like on coin market cap and like, frankly, like, I don't know, 23 of them are base chains. I mean, I think like maker is in there. Tether is in there. Um, those aren't base chains, you know, the, those are application layer stuff. Um, but like basically everything else is, is a base chain. And like, frankly, most of them like have no really good reason to exist, but the incentives in this space for a long time have been why make an app when you can like fork someone's code and scam, I mean, hype with marketing on YouTube to people and then cash out. Like it's the unfortunate reality of our industry that I don't know, as I often say, like on Twitter, like it's kind of a joke to me, like the, this industry, right? Right. Like until the, you know what I mean? Like there are all, all these base chains, which have no real reason to exist, but which people make crazy amounts of money on. And then there's all these people on YouTube telling all these people that are like interested in crypto to buy this junk. And then of course they eventually go away because they got swindled into buying this junk. You know, I don't know. Right. I, yeah. So this reminds me, on a me rant, but this reminds me of, uh, the four point South park plan for, uh, launching a, <laughs> a startup, uh, a tech startup. And the four point plan was to start up cash in, sell out and bro down. Um, the only thing that has changed from that in crypto is that you could sell out pre-product. Yeah. Onto onto um i they're not technically consumers but i wouldn't call them investors either um the yeah the and, and to be fair i'm not trying to say that polka dot is like a scam i'm not necessarily grouping them in the, and with like all of the like the real scams like um i think they are doing legit tech work um as they actually some of the other things in the top 25 have as well but just like if it's like not really that novel or interesting it's not really clear why it should exist and and but but really my my bigger point there was like they just realized they can make a lot more money by doing another base chain even though like frankly it's not that dissimilar to eth2 and i'm personally quite skeptical that they can get any sort of community um, I do hold some dots. Um, I might sell them to be to be quite honest with you. How do you um, even get a hold of dots? Because it wasn't an open crowd sale. Well, there was a sale in 2017. Was it on Ethereum? Yeah. I didn't. I don't see an ERC20 token for dots selling anywhere. It's out there. It's locked, though. It's locked. Okay, got it. Was it? You KYC? can find it on. E you can find it on Etherscan. Yeah, actually, they parody had a product like a KYC product, right? And they uh, they had to get rid of it maybe a year and a half ago because of GDPR. Got it. But okay. it was it was basically supposed to be like an ICO passport product kind of deal. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, I actually liked Parody's work, and I'm not saying this past tense. I like Parity's work in the sense that Ethereum having two main implementations 
of their uh, client implementations, I think was a major contributing factor to how fast they've been able to iterate. Um, originally, there was the C++ implementation, <laughs> the Go implementation, and eventually like the... Um, the Rust implementation replaced the C++ implementation. And having multiple clients allows for uh, implementation-specific bugs to potentially not be um, as catastrophic as they would have been, for example, if it was in the Bitcoin D software, right? Like if there is an implementation bug that permits like misuse with Bitcoin D, since it's by far the vast majority of all clients people run then essentially isn't it like 95 percent or something yeah yeah it is right um i i'm really curious as to what the other percentage are i know parody also has a bitcoin client but for some reason people never use it um well they they did that for miners and then i think those miners might have gone to bch or something i don't know so i'm not even sure the parody bitcoin client is like Maintained. maintained yeah i'm not sure either first of all like rust code very difficult to find people to like do good implementations of rust code it is a much steeper learning curve for developers and i'm saying this as someone who has tried ascending that learning curve and slid down a couple of times um mainly because I had to actually get something done. <laughs> and then I'm like, all right, learning's over. Let's uh, let's get shit that works quickly. <laughs> and that is not exactly the strong suit for Rust. Um, but yeah, their, their software has been really good, and they had some interesting insights onto the Ethereum space thus far. Um, but it's like the personal stories and the drama and the background to it are uh non-negligible and yeah in the end like okay the next thing that i wanted to mention is the gavin woods coindesk article that i'm not understating this in terms of how uh, how much some of the potential animosity is between um, these organizations. The article is titled, Hold Tight, Here Come the Blockchain Wars. And before I get into it and explain to it, do you have any reactions you want to share, like impressions after reading this Coindesk article from Gavin Wood, who's the head of Parity? <laughs> I mean, honestly, when I read it, my my first impression was this needed an editor. Like, I mean, it was kind of just stream of consciousness. Blockchains are going to have wars. I mean, you know, it's hard. It's hard to like. I just I didn't think it was like exactly clear, like what he was trying to say. Which, of course, like has been a big fuel for the fire of today. Of like ethereum people like saying like you know this is just gavin declaring war on us and like you got to realize like so actually the the people that i've seen saying that mostly are not the old timers but the old timers are all extremely skeptical of gavin i mean a lot of them would 
privately say things like bad actor. I mean, like they do all the time, like, but usually privately. Um, and I mean, it's just like this weird, like at one point he mentioned like the, you know, the, the fact that parody didn't get there, like when they had their bug for polka dot and their, their front funds got frozen at one point he like pointed to that as, you know, um, a reason why there would be these blockchain wars, which again, like when you then like three days later, like announce that you're giving up the parity client, like is, you know, I don't know. I, I agree. You can't really like, you can't really be surprised that people feel like you've declared war on them. And to be fair, like parity's like stated party line is, well, we're giving this to a DAO and the DAO is going to maintain it. <laughs> But I don't, I don't know how, I mean, I don't know. So the, yeah, I... I don't know how to feel about that, to be honest with you. I'm pretty skeptical. Did you read the My Crypto um, tweet thread? Yeah, I, I did, yeah. I mean... that that's I actually didn't read the main article. Instead, I read the selected comments. Um Mainly because I, I didn't want to dive into the details of governance. I mean, Parity has this vision within Polkadot, like baked into the core protocol that you can have on-chain governance that properly manages the uh, software that it's running on, right? So the idea that they could have a DAO that manages the client implementation, that runs the code, that the maintains the DAO essentially um, ideologically seems consistent but at the same time it's probably more consistent to point out to the fact that um, they probably don't have correctly aligned incentives and putting it into a DAO is putting it in a conservation state as opposed to like them taking continuous responsibility for the client. And yeah, I mean, personally, I think if you wish they would just release it into the public domain, like, I mean, you know, people could fork it, but I'm not sure exactly what the license is on it, um, which it might not matter. Like, the licensing might not matter anyway. Um, but who knows? Even, I mean, if we'll, you, we'll see. even if you fork the main code repo, um, the idea is that like you have is it a four or five year old project like inherently within projects of this magnitude if everyone with experience um and who's been maintaining it for a very long time walks away from it it's really unlikely that it will survive um, if you have a separate entity that takes responsibility for rewarding and paying people who use uh, or who maintain the software, then essentially you are creating like open salary receipts for the people who previously were receiving money to continue uh, doing the development the DAO could potentially open the 
a kind of transparency that independent contributors uh, would need to essentially like know that they're getting paid fairly for their contributions. Um, but the flip side of it is creating a different organization to take responsibility for maintaining the code base is a way to make sure that they themselves aren't the ones responsible for the code base. And that's fundamentally it. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's been in maintenance mode for months already, right? I mean, I think that's fairly clear. Yeah. They have everybody working on Polkadot. Basically, yeah. And when we say that they have it on maintenance mode, um, it's, I mean, it's bad enough that like the Rust programming language is fundamentally like it takes longer to implement the same things as something in a, as a goat repo. All other things being consistent, it's just like the language itself is uh, a little bit more time consuming and it requires you to do more things than um, Go, for example. But the um, the other aspect is that it does seem like in the past couple of months that several upgrades and have been delayed in order to ensure that all of the um, all of the clients essentially were up to spec and could like essentially update simultaneously with the new features um and yeah it's even yeah i mean they, they yeah they dragged i mean for sure they were the reason for i mean a few small delays i think the bigger thing is like you know warp sync broke and it took them a long time to fix it you know they it's a little thing, right? But like the Istanbul, like there was one of the EIPs wasn't enabled in, in the config file for mainnet. Um, so they had to have like an emergency release like two days or three days before Istanbul um, so that, you know, consensus didn't break for everybody running parity. Um, you know, I think particularly for parity that has had, you know, a history of you know, unfortunately, like just being honest, like not necessarily the best security practices. <laughs> like it's it's tough. It's yeah, and and uh, you can see why they wouldn't want that reputational risk anyway, right? Like, what are we maintaining this for? Um, right. When like you know we we raised a hundred million dollars for Polkadot, right? Like, what are we what are we messing around for? five million for so yeah um, but to be honest said, i actually messed, thought, messed up incentives i i completely agreed with uh that prognosis but i always thought that the original incentive was that they didn't want polka dot to be a separate community and their history and their uh, continued commitment to ethereum could allow them to as the people in Zcash would say, as opposed to a hard fork, like soft spoon, essentially. Um, but I think that this past year has shown that most of the community has been reticent. Actually, some of the community has been outright, like vocally opposed to any project deciding to like build a parachain. Um I, I remember Amin being very vocal 
uh, the founder of Spank Chain, being very vocal against the idea that like the Ethereum community can be like you can move your project onto another chain. <laughs> um, out of curiosity, did Aragon, the Aragon chain, decide to actually be implemented on pair like Polkadot? You actually broke up there. What, what was that? I mean, did what, what was the, uh, the Aragon chain decide to actually be implemented on Polkadot? Oh uh, no, they didn't. They they had to leave it because they realized Polkadot wasn't ready. They're now Arachain is on Cosmos now. Oh, got it. Okay, which I mean, it actually made a little more sense for them. They um, like Cosmos is better EVM, right? Um, you know, that's another story. I think that Arachain is 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 uh, as somebody said on Twitter, the uncanny EOS Valley, um, which is like it's not enough decentralization to ever like make sense but it's not enough centralization to make sense it's like in the middle where like it just doesn't work and nobody wants to use it <laughs> um <laughs> which is just like i mean the, are you talking about yeah. polka dot in its current state no i was talking about arrow chain sorry i guess i got derailed but like just like if you're running a dow like you, like if you like that has money like on on ethereum like you want you want to know that your voting on is secure, right? So right. do you want to do it on another chain which might like have like a tiny little market cap making it attackable or like, you know, so somebody votes and even if they can't get the chain insecure, they can stop the liveness so that nobody right. else can vote and they win the vote. Like I just I I I mean anybody that would like be willing to do use that error chain why wouldn't you just use XDAI? I mean, like, True. I, anyway, just yeah. doesn't make any sense to me, honestly. Yeah, it, it, it makes sense. Uh, your criticisms definitely make sense. That wasn't necessarily the, the point that I was trying to make regarding. Uh, yeah, sorry, I, I got but derailed. The, <laughs> uh, but the idea uh, was essentially to um, be open and inclusive because Ethereum has. Um, the largest developer community, the largest user base, and the largest um, like number of projects being built and integrated with it. And there's a first mover advantage in combination with uh, an ecosystem advantage that is basically going to decide the fate of most blockchain projects in the near future. Um, for the simple fact that there's so much work to do, that there is no single blockchain project, I'm looking at you, EOS, that can buy all of that work, <laughs> especially if there is no community or projects that would benefit from that work, right? So you could almost spend as much money as you want in development in the blockchain space and not buy the ecosystem advantage that Ethereum current ha currently has. I originally thought that was the strategy of Parity. I thought Parity wanted to maintain the close relationship with Ethereum um, for the same reason that people like Cosmos or anyone really um, would want to as well so that they could benefit from the ecosystem and advances that happen on Ethereum can be integrated into their own platform. I thought that was always the 
the underlied implied assumption and the idea is like yeah we'll bite the costs because the benefits for us are intangible per se but at the same irreplaceable and i guess that crypto winter if it lasts long enough will eventually burn a lot of these bridges <laughs> and with other projects and i don't know it yeah i can't say that the ecosystem is as young as naive as it was when i first joined um but i also can't say that it's anywhere close to like an actual competitive cutthroat warlike environment like any other industry is um most code is still being shared freely um and the projects that don't share that code freely are like asterisks at the bottom of an article <laughs> right like they're basically going to be left behind just because of how fast things are changing and if you have a limited narrow-minded like a uh, set of contributors working on something in a closed environment there's no way you could keep up with the changes that are going on around you or even the people that you know they're you can look at their code but it's patented so if you look at their code then you're basically opening yourself up to lawsuit risk um, sure hbar or whatever that's called hedera hashgraph i don't know it's got yeah. like 18 names Did of they course they're now up their code asterisk I don't know. I didn't look. I think the code is, is. I think the code is open. Yeah, the code's open. Just don't. Well, look. you should, then you're <laughs> opening yourself up to getting sued, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, it is absolutely insane. Like, why would you ever look at their code? I mean, it's like, do you like, if you're successful, then and then they'll sue you eventually. Like, it's almost like an inevitability. It's like a patent, you know. I mean, patents always patent. start off de defensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, exactly. But I mean, they, it, patents always start off defensive. And then when they think they can, you know, like when they get sold to the next big company, um, like because there was, the, you know, the company failed, like, and then they get purchased by a patent troll and then they get, the big companies get sued, you know, this is like right. the sad life cycle of like, what happens in with IP, unfortunately. I mean, the right. whole system is like a scam, let's be honest with you. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, sorry, it's, I got off on a rant on, on that. But uh. no, no, it's uh, So in the context of the Gavin Woods article, it's essentially that um, he predicts that people start using um, or abusing other platforms as a way to get one up on their competitors. And that the current level of uh, openness and sharing within blockchain projects is doomed in the near to long term um, because essentially people aren't behaving as if they are uh, competitors. He might have been talking about himself as if like he wasn't treating Ethereum as a proper competitor. Um, Ethereum did start treating them as a proper competitor at a certain point <laughs> after being called out by several individuals on Twitter as like trying to poach talent um, to a new vision and a new product and 
basically pointing out the fact that they're developing their own implementation rather than like building off of ETH2. I kind of have a controversial opinion on this, and my opinion is that having a completely independent and opinionated implementation of a way to scale blockchain technology, I'm glad they have the funding to try it. I'm glad they have the independence to pursue it. And it's interesting that they have like a solid cohesive vision that is, let's be honest, not exactly up for debate <laughs> um, as to how they will accomplish this. It's definitely interesting. Like coming from an engineering perspective, I'm glad they're trying to solve some problems that I don't see an immediate solution to. And <laughs> basically... That was a nice way to say that. <laughs> no, I, I mean, mean there like, are a lot, I talk to a lot of people that don't think Polkadot will ever work in the ultimate vision. Um, but, you know, we'll see, right? But that's the it thing. It's a hard like, problem to actually like have like legitimately different chains in like any meaningful consensus is like... Really? Yeah, plus the plus the differences of having different consensus mechanisms that uh, coalesce into a central consensus mechanism and that the main chain is actually like the root authority um, and any other chain can be um, essentially like encoded as a light client as uh, to the main chain. Fascinating. The implementation yeah. details and the complexity to it are yet unsolved. But, like, it's kind of cool that they get to do their own thing, you know? Like, maybe there, there will be things that they do really well. Maybe there will be things that Ethereum 2 does better than the original negative assumptions of some of their team members from, like, four years ago. <laughs> um, and it's, like... One of the things is, like, we're building difficult, unproven, untested assumptions, and we essentially have to predict what technolo uh, technological advances are going to exist, like, two years from now in order to appropriately be able to accomplish some of the uh, development goals for some of these projects. Polkadot and ETH2 both have massive research hurdles, um that are still unsolved and it's kind of cool and it's kind of important that we have projects that are legitimately trying to like solve these problems right and, and i can contrast this to other projects that have a that basically undersell or try to like ignore some of the risks inherent to their scaling solutions as opposed to trying and inventing something new and like instead i don't know they implement a uh what's it called they in implement a classical consensus mechanism without civil resistance but they have some kind of like voting mechanism for example it's like okay cool like that's it's not fundamentally interesting and it has like structural weaknesses to it that anyone who's tried to build this type of thing can spot but instead they just try to cover over it with like marketing and 
patents right. and whatever uh, they can to essentially obfuscate the fact that they're fundamentally not solving a problem and they're just making compromises that should be unacceptable um but yeah i think i think it's a legitimate attempt and i think it's important that we have other like completely independent uh projects and implementations but i hope he's wrong <laughs> not not in like his idea and vision of what he wants to build with the software like that i honestly like wholeheartedly hope that he succeeds because having you a mean successful in the, like the wars aspect yes i in the actual attitude and approach of these teams and the idea that collaboration can't exist in the idea that because we're all competing businesses we can't treat this like an academic exercise and share the coolest innovations amongst each other which was one of the key talking points that he mentioned he said that mature companies don't share openly all of their cool stuff <laughs> basically saying that like facebook doesn't reveal like the major competitive advantages with their graph database system right like they don't open source all of their early graph ql work things like that um i hope he's wrong <laughs> as as someone who who has experienced this ecosystem when um people actually do want to accomplish something different and they don't want to establish a traditional monopolistic business venture that just makes enough revenue to be able to create a walled garden and i don't know kind of create a mini monopoly within a new industry um i hope he's wrong about that part of the vision for sure As one of his quotes yeah. called it, realpolitik of business. It's like, realpolitik was an excuse back in the 60s for us to get involved in Vietnam, <laughs> right? It's, in retrospect and in history, realpolitik wasn't that real, <laughs> and it wasn't that useful. <laughs> not at the time, and definitely not historically. But that's, like, a different aspect. And the idea being, like, is the rest of the blockchain industry forced to just kind of like fight it out like Lord of the Flies, basically trying to one-up each other because there is no collaboration between projects or teams anymore? I don't know. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's interesting because like Gavin from the moment of Polkadot, his pitch was always like, I mean, you can go back and look. It's like, and we are declaiming like the end of maximalism. We are the anti-maximalist. And yet like this, you know, the article basically sounded like I'm declaring like the most maximalist philosophy I can think of, you know, um, which, you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. I, like, you know, as you were saying, like, how, how are they pitching themselves? I think every, like, in some sense, everybody's a competitor to everybody in this space, right? Like, right. Um, I don't, like, I feel like people that really think that, that like, we're all, like, quote-unquote synergistic. That's probably, um, to be fair, like, a lot of libraries do get shared and whatnot, and so there is a fair amount of collaboration. 
um, like, you know, we'll see who wins and, um, and whatnot. Personally, I think, you know, the inertia of the Ethereum community is going to be very difficult to, to match, but, um, we'll see. I mean, like a lot of projects, I mean, Cosmos was a big, it was a good example of like somebody that started off trying to be super friendly, super cozy up with Ethereum. They even announced two years ago, you know, we are going to hard spoon to Ethereum and, you know, like this big marketing to Ethereum developers. And they, they pitched that for a while. And by the way, you know, when the last time I heard somebody mention Cosmos's hard spoon to Ethereum holders, it was at least 18 months ago. <laughs> like they haven't done it. I mean, they have like become like, I mean, it's been like a ramping up as they thought they were getting closer. They have become, more hostile and more you know tribalistic of their own thing and like you know it's uh, it, it is what it is right i mean like bitcoiners hit ethereum because they fear ethereum is like the main competitor to them and everybody else below ethereum also attacks ethereum because they think that's their best chance of success so it's this weird uh you know like ethereum has always been attacked from all sides and um, you know, despite that, like it keeps growing because developers keep not really seeing viable alternatives, frankly, like, yeah, yeah. Without sacrificing major components to it. Um, it's, it's also the fact that back in the day, the, um, I don't know if it was, it was, I don't think it was Bitcoin.org, but anyways, it was one of the Bitcoin based newsletters was a productive and constructive um, forum for debate in terms of the technology, the trade-offs, and people honestly debated um, what the advantages and the disadvantages are of implementing certain technologies. And because of the large developer base at Ethereum, E3Search has also become that. And I've always kind of admired the fact that they were open to sometimes admit that another project has done something better than they did. And also like extend an olive branch to other groups of people that they respect, like the Zcash Foundation, Zuko, and um, Ian Myers and the researchers that are involved there as well. Um, people have faulted Ethereum for being too inclusive, too open. Like, main stage DevCon had random, I wouldn't call them competing because they're not on the same level, projects like, uh, <laughs> I mean, the, straight up, like, there's no way you could say Open Libra is <laughs> it's on the same level. I don't even know if, like, they have developers, but... Um, they essentially are competing ideologies and they are different visions and different implementations. But at the same time, like if they build something cool, let's be honest, Ethereum developers are going to look at it. They're going to review it. But if nothing else, like we should at least keep the openness, the intellectual honesty to be able to admit when another project has done something really cool and see if it is something that is um, worth implementing or taking into account or 
like building off of and the amount of people working on this um, applications and like various layers and different parts of ethereum it's highly unlikely that there would be something successfully implemented um that ethereum can't like assimilate or use to improve their own protocol unless of course as in the case of Polkadot, it is like a fundamentally like top to bottom redesigned reimagination. And man, I hope their code works. Like I hope um, it does what it needs to, but I, I also don't, don't want blockchain to essentially become dominated by like the likes of Facebook, Apple, Amazon, you know, I don't want a monopolistic organization growing out. And I would rather it be an open source community that somehow figures out proper economic incentives for the people doing the work (laughs) and in which the correct ideas of how to better and improve this ecosystem and the core clients, to be honest, because that's probably the hardest thing to actually fund. Um, And they get rewarded properly in proportion to their work and their contribution, their effort. And it's tough. Like Ethereum back in the day, they were like, okay, well, we don't have to make color coins on Bitcoin. We could have an entire platform and then no one's going to have to like create another network <laughs> for ICOs because they could build applications right on top of this generalizable smart contracting platform. Indeed. Yep. And people instead used Ethereum's smart contract platform to raise money. And then they realized that there was no other way to develop a top 20 coin if they didn't have their own protocol. So (laughs) they ended up using Ethereum to raise money to build their own protocol. Yep, base chains, the way to to make money. Um, (laughs) Whether whether there's a point to them or not, like it's what people will buy so far. And we've probably beaten this one to death. I know, um, completely. Is I, there anything else you wanted to talk about? Um, there was a while in there where I wanted to talk about Nier, because I actually think Nier is doing a bunch of really interesting stuff, and probably the competitor I take, the Ethereum competitor I take most seriously. Okay. Uh, I should say I also hold some Nier. Um, but uh, I don't know. Like We should probably just move on. There's more to talk about. Yeah. Um, and we've I, really I rambled, I think, up. so far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would love to read up on it as well. Um, we can talk about the Saga token. So, yeah, I'm not sure there's as much to say about that. I mean, they, you know, they were they have Nobel Prize winner Myron Scholes, uh, who was also involved in long-term capital management, <laughs> which is a hedge fund that blew up. Um, Oh, I know. Uh, I, involved... I grew up in the shadow of that that building. Uh, okay. <laughs> ah, so, um, uh, I mean, anyway, he's like the 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 like the clickbait is because he's an advisor that you know all the crypto clickbait media sites use uh-huh. um, to to promote this. 
Um, but I mean, it's kind of interesting. Like they they're doing like a basket of of forex currencies of fiat currencies, however you want to call it. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, I think that they're doing a similar makeup to the IMF's SDR, which is special drawing rights. Um, or SGA. Oh, sorry. SGA is the name of the token. SDR is the name of the basket of currencies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The IMF's SDR. Um, yeah, like, personally, I'm... I'm quite skeptical that anyone actually wants a basket of of foreign currencies. And I, I, I think, like, the did. reason why... <laughs> I did. Well, so yeah. it depends on, like, where, like... It, so it's it's a thing that, like, people often think, like, oh, it would be great. Like, I could just have these basket of foreign currencies. But then, and, like... It, so there's been people that have tried to do this SDR thing over the years and there's never been a market for it. And the reason why is basically like, if you think about like what money is, right? Like the whole like unit of account, means of exchange, um, store of value, like, um, like it's not the unit of account of anybody, you know, like, and so, you know, it's like theoretically stable, but stable against what? I mean, right. it's not like an, a thing that exists in the world. So, is it storing your value? Like, I mean, maybe. Like, it's it's this weird. Like, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, you just nobody ends up like feeling super happy with it. That would need it. That couldn't just like aside from somebody large enough to just buy a basket of currencies that reflects the risks that they take in their business or investments or what have you, you know? Um, so that's my rant on, I'm pretty skeptical of, of SDRs. I should say that maker originally was going to do SDRs and, um, they, you know, a while back, a couple of years back, they changed to doing the dollar instead. And I got much more bullish on maker at that point. Um, and I, you can probably, I was probably one of those accounts, badgering rune in 2015 and 2016 not to do sdrs with probably much of the same arguments that i just made here so nice that's actually that's really interesting i've never actually heard that perspective i've always thought of um sdrs as like the old school intention for a um a world central bank reserve currency that is actually like one-to-one pegged to a basket of um, nations currencies weighted by their gdp and the interesting aspect of um so that was actually the proposal by uh john maynard keynes or keynes whatever I don't know how to properly pronounce it, uh, during the original Bretton Woods conferences. So the idea of rather than having the dollar as the world reserve currency, which at that time meant only the dollar was directly convertible to gold and every other current, uh, every other country's dollar was, or dollar equivalent currency would be exchangeable for us dollars. So for example, the franc the french uh unit of account 
would be exchangeable for dollars, but then they could go to the central bank of the United States and exchange their dollars for gold. Well, when France finally did ask <laughs> for their gold after they exchanged uh, their foreign reserves, for, they wanted to exchange their foreign reserves from dollars directly into gold because the U.S. was running very large deficits to fund the Vietnam War. Um, Nixon essentially dropped the gold peg. So the interesting aspect, especially like during the last financial crisis, was the fact that once the U.S. entered a financial crisis and everyone else was starting to expect a financial crisis as well, it actually appreciated the U.S. dollar, which was right. exactly what we didn't want because that has a depressionary effect causing the U.S. to have to print even more money. And people were saying that this might actually like be the main reason why um, having the U.S. dollar as the sole reserve currency wasn't such a good idea, right? So the idea is that if you have the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency, then you are um, essentially going to create uh, larger deficits for yourself. Um, by the simple fact that whenever you enter a crisis, by the simple fact that your the dollar will appreciate, um, making your exports even more uncompetitive, and so on and so forth. So there's a huge history with like baskets of currencies and how you can use them and how international finance wants to use them. Um, I think adding a cryptocurrency token or layer is kind of a marketing gimmick slash ploy. I mean, you can have basket of like a basket of uh, foreign exchange products, right? Like you could own forex positions that replicate the effect of a basket of goods, right? Without actually owning a cryptocurrency that actually owns that specific like amount of foreign exchange right um yeah I, it, but i think it's definitely an important project to watch because unlike maker um if you have like very good banking relationships then the concept of quote fully collateralized <laughs> uh assets becomes um, put in air quotes, essentially, right? And the idea is that could these uh, institutions legally issue, quote, stable coins into a market while actually using leverage for their collateral backing those tokens so that it's a fractionally reserved, quote, stable coin that they're essentially issuing onto individuals. And there would be practically no way to distinguish that from, like, a maker-type system, you know? Um, that's not exactly what they planned on doing, but it's essentially the same thing, because they have... The um, chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase International actually on their board. And 
having a bank that is part of the Federal Reserve System means that they technically print money. And when they credit your account, that is the equivalent of having cash in your account. But because it is a fractionally reserve-based lending institution, they don't have a one-to-one actual collateral ratio for any of their assets, right? And if all of their depositors ask for the withdrawal of their funds simultaneously, they don't have it. They've rented it out. They've lent it out by like 10, 15x at the very least. And the issue is that you, if you have such large institutions who literally create money for a Federal Reserve banking system, issuing a global stable coined equivalent, um, it could be a very weird type of backdoor way to introduce the original vision of a, um, they called it Bancor, not related to the blockchain project, but it was the basket of goods as a stable coin right and the veneer of the security implicit in blockchain technology as a stable coin doesn't help at all <laughs> if the actual like organizational and business structure that underlies it is intransparent and unable to actually like enforce the one to one peg but sorry that was kind of like a long rant Essentially, I don't trust the organization that hired the same researcher that caused the first trillion-dollar bailout um, in modern <laughs> U.S. history. So, Indeed. I mean, there is a great book on long-term capital management. When Genius Fails? Say, yeah, Roger Lowenstein, I think, was the author. Yeah. If I, anyone hasn't read it. I really liked it. <laughs> I read it a very long time ago, though. But essentially what long-term capital management did is they took um, arbitrage positions, which is essentially, uh, quote, risk-free um, uh, speculative market positions in which they used um, a formula that was calculated by uh, Scholes, but also another individual called Black. So it's called the Black-Scholes valuation model, in which they calculated the actual cost of derivatives. Um, It wasn't the actual cost of the derivatives that they calculated. It was a simplified, risk-free, perfect world version of the actual price of derivatives. So what they ended up doing was they created... Um, opposing positions that canceled out and essentially they were taking um, they were essentially canceling out their risk positions by taking opposing bets using derivatives on both sides of the market so whether the market goes up or down theoretically they should profit Um, but that had a lot of assumptions kind of just like brushed under the rug and um, the collapse of the Russian bond market combined with the fact that they were leveraged close to 50 to 1 essentially 
created the the need for the first bailout of any financial institution. The Federal Reserve um, obligated all of the like lending institutions to collectively pitch in cash to buy out uh, capital asset management's uh, um, portfolio and essentially like assume all of their positions with the full backing of their institution. So they basically like had to purchase capital asset management's um, derivative positions and hold them until liquidation so as to essentially like undo this massive tangle of supposedly canceling out uh, liabilities. Um, the funny thing is that the financial institutions eventually did make a profit, but in the short term, because of short-term market discrepancies and risk and an increase, a massive increase in volatility um, because of the Russian um, debt crisis at the time, it needed almost $1 trillion to bail out this single private company. <laughs> Anyways, it's it's a very fascinating piece of history, and it basically shows the first example of, uh, of a Fed-organized bailout, which unfortunately set the precedent for 2008 and 2009. Um, but... The idea that now they would create a stable currency is, I mean, it's not they, it, he's just one of the advisors, um, not directly managing it, but yeah, it's, it's hard not to draw correlations between the stories. Yeah. Should we, should we get back to eat stuff? <laughs> <laughs> um, what we, else is on the list? We are um, already over an hour. So maybe we should wrap it up. Um, did you have anything else on your list? Um, I don't think so. I, like, I remember, you know, 1559, I think is really interesting. And okay. I, uh, I published... Um, I published an annotated version of my Week in Ethereum newsletter um, on my own personal site, so evanvadenass.com, uh, if anyone's interested, in where I talked a little bit about it. But um, it, uh, it it takes ETH2's economic model, which is basically to burn part of every transaction fee, um, and uh, it would put it into ETH1, and I think it'll be really interesting if it happens. Um, because actually it really like it really ties eth into the to the protocol um like really makes it mandatory um as opposed so, to like exchanging erc20 tokens for um for gas yeah yeah so economic abstraction is ruled out for sure um that's that's definitely one thing but um um the fact that miners would basically no longer be able to like it, it 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 takes away some minor incentive for misbehavior right because now they can just include their own transactions right um whereas if they did it with this they'd have to burn some eth to do it so um it 
I think it's uh, it's a good thing. It does it will like raise the raise the cost on people like me that are willing to wait a long time. Like I often will wait, you know, thirty minutes for a transaction. Like if I'm not in a hurry, um, like and thus I pay a lot less. That will kind of go away. But um, it is uh, it's going to be a big thing, and like it is one of the things that is going to keep issuance like at basically zero when ETH two is is live and running. Um, and it'll even lower issuance if we get it running in ETH one, and in the meantime, in the meantime, um, I think it's uh, I think it's interesting. Is but what about mining incentives? Um, is the mining reward already uh, down to two ether? Uh, the block rewards is two ether right now. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it's basically been halved already since um, like the last year. Yeah, it went from years. five to three, and then it went from three to two. And wow, the last, okay. and the, so, not this hard fork, but the previous hard fork. So it's more than halved. Um, isn't Double. there a certain point in which if the block rewards are so small that um, miners will essentially turn off their mining equipment? Or is Ethereum, because it's targeted, like, people who have uh, a gaming computer and they just want to turn on their GPU to mine, like, that's always been their, like, target demographic uh, for miners. Is um, is there a certain fear that uh, further reductions in block rewards will essentially discourage people from continuing to mine? Well, this isn't. This doesn't change the block reward. It actually just touches the transaction fees. But so, it isn't like the final payout, the block reward plus transaction fees. And if you reduce transaction fees, then you're reducing the block reward. So this would actually probably increase the transaction fees in ETH1 by a marginal amount, very marginal amount. I mean, um, but are those the same? Is that so? It would reduce the cost of transactions. Sorry, it would increase the cost of transactions for the users. But would it? What wouldn't it also decrease the mining reward? simultaneously because so, like you're burning it somewhere i think so. probably makes more sense to like explain it the way it really is which is it basically tries to target a specific block size okay and so it will shift so so basically it makes the gas price predictable because you like it will expand uh the block size will expand to like 2x if if um like if there is the transaction demand but the gas price will keep going up right and, and then like the opposite is true on the on the on the other way like if it if gas prices are really if if demand is really low and there's a low amount of uh, transactions then the transaction price will just be really low the gas price um but that, that so the idea kind of is that you can always well, it's it's easier for the user, right? Like right now, you have to go to ETH gas station and check what gas prices are. With this, you it should be a million times easier for ga for wallets to just know with a relatively high degree of certainty that your transaction is going to go through. Like, got in, it. But, okay. Yeah. So 
I, that's I was why actually it, thinking it, of it more of in like the state bloat or the um, the actual. At a certain point, you can't fit more transactions into a block, right? So we're not. Yeah. There so yet, that, that is but... one thing that. Yeah. Exactly. Like if we really like if we really had like demand at some point that like this would just wouldn't we would just be running at full capacity and that would be sort of crazy um, yeah the first thing i was thinking was like a crypto kitties moment in which there was such like a gold rush essentially that people were swallowing very high gas prices um yeah um yeah i mean there's really no way around that if like transaction demand is way higher than the throughput which the chain can can, can contain like right now and like ETH1 does can do 35 simple ETH transactions per second there is nothing that can be done about that right um, Right. that's not even exactly true because there is actually more throughput that can probably be handled um, part of the reason why we don't do it now is exactly that it's like state bloat right like yeah so and and that's kind of the thing like if if people always know that their transactions go through and there's no uh hard cap so the gas also functions as a ddos prevention so i'm imagining like you have the shanghai ddos attacks and they spent like millions of dollars in then eth um in order to ddos the network but the amazing thing was if you had like open-ended capacity essentially for gas you could ddos a single block essentially and you could essentially pay like exponential amount of money just to make one block that's so big that no one will ever finish mining within the block time but anyways that's that's game theoretical and i'm sure these are discussed more in the actual eip but i'm actually interested this does sound interesting is there any reason i mean besides you like... could you could submit a bunch of transactions but you can do that right now right like right but the idea is that like can you send enough transactions so that you can't actually validate the block within the block no time? i mean it would be the same as like right now basically which is the miner would just make a block at the max that's been set and and move on so the eip 1559 does contain a like a basically a, um like what i talked about was like the, the the fee adjust up and down based on how empty or full the block is um okay. and so it it can fluctuate between you know basically zero and 2x or whatever they set it at of mm -hmm. the targeted limit and part of that fee will be burned. But the other part is, is that you can also always also still like include a special tip to the miner to like skip ahead in the queue, just like you can today. Right. So, um, okay. So you can always there's still like the op option to still skip ahead. So the formation of the block would just be the miners would still basically do the same thing they do today, which is stick the most profitable transactions in the block and send it on to other miners, right? Propagate it. Nice. Okay. All yeah, right. Well, we've yammered, yammered for a while now. Great. 
Yeah, I'll have to do my uh, homework on that AIP, but it does sound interesting. Is that is the intention um, to reduce the uh, inflation of Ethereum? Uh, that's a good, good question. I think so. Vitalik originally was the author of the original EIP. He framed it as um, being, and at the time, I, this was what he was talking about. So I think it was true. He had been talking about like thinking that we needed a mechanism to have more predictable gas prices. Got it. So I think this has more to do with UX for you know non-dev end users than it does. Like, you know, the ETH is money meme, which I think is like sort of, sort of like what some of the people that have picked that have really promoted this this EIP have have picked up on because it's a way to like sell it to the community. But I mean, the real benefit is like the end user will have a a and developers too will be able to set a a gas price that they can basically know will get them. Like you'll always know what the gas price is to get in the next block, basically. Interesting. Yeah, I also kind of wonder, man, I, I'm about to go down a rabbit hole of like front running on decentralized exchanges. So I'm going to stop <laughs> and I'm going to read yeah, the yeah. EIP and uh, we'll update our listeners on uh, how that turns out. Yeah, cool. It was great talking to you. Talk to you next week. Yeah, we're gonna get good. back in the groove. We are. Yep. I'm not gonna be traveling as much, and I'm looking forward to that. And uh, yeah, we'll probably have uh, one more chat before the holidays. Sounds good. I'll be here. <laughs> <laughs> Does it feel like Christmas in Texas? I mean, I went out and mowed my lawn in shorts and a t-shirt today, so. <laughs> I don't it's, know. I mean, it feels like Texas. It yesterday. feels like Christmas. To me. <laughs> I mean, snow just sounds like hell. So I don't know. That doesn't sound like Christmas either. Do you decorate your cactus? I don't have cactuses. You don't. <laughs> I have cacti. <laughs> uh, that's today. Okay. Awesome. See you next week. All right. Later. Peace.